Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, who in the Paschal mystery established the new covenant of reconciliation, grant that all who have been born into the fellowship of Christ's body may show forth in their lives what they profess by their faith. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. The Old Testament reading is from Genesis. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters are still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Then, Noah said to, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is, the coven this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. The word of the Lord. A reading from the, work, from the book of Acts. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says, according to him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. 
Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. The word of the Lord. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. In the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And if you forgive the sins of any, they are, for, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was there with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hands in the place and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, You have believed because you have seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But if these were written, but these were written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, your Son and the great gift of Easter, and for your Word telling us all these things that we might believe. Um, speak to our hearts and our minds right now, and. Um, refresh our belief and our faith and, and strengthen us. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> I think many of us have faced uh, a very specific um, difficulty in our lives. It's a, a very real challenge. Maybe if it came when we were quite young, it wasn't such a big deal. But if it happens when we're teenagers or adults, it can be devastating, beyond embarrassing. It leaves marks, permanent marks, on how we might view ourselves. I'm, of course, talking about that moment when we first see the word hors d'oeuvres in writing and then have to say it out loud. And yes, I did have to spell check that word. There are three R's in hors d'oeuvres. I didn't even realize that. I think we encounter this word spoken to us, and it does, does not help us at all when we then see it written down and have to pronounce it. First time I saw it when it was written, I pronounced it horse doovers. Um, 
my wife was telling me this week that about her own issue with this hors d'oeuvres. Again, not hors d'oeuvres as food, as language. Um, she had actually, as a teenager, worked out correctly the, the word and the pronunciation and how those things work together. And she was 18 at one point at home, and she saw a wedding invitation, and she commented on it. Oh, look, what so-and-so is getting married. Oh, they're going to have some hors d'oeuvres. Well, her dad, at that point, needed to correct her. He told her, that's it's not how you say it. It's or's divorce. And she laughed, Dad, Dad, I know it's, it's hors d'oeuvres. Everyone says it's hors d'oeuvres. I, I know this. And then he went on to explain quite in depth about how many people pronounce it wrongly and how they get that pronunciation confused and how if you go back to French, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, Liz's dad makes up like jokes and stories all the time, so she was really skeptical. Except normally when he makes up stories, He's very obvious about it. He, he smiles, he chuckles, he really can't help himself. He does not have a straight face for these types of things. But when he told her this and laid it all out, I think over several minutes, it sounds like, um, he never smiled once. He was just totally straight-faced and so serious about it that Liz believed him. So she then went on to pronounce it or's divorce. Uh, even publicly, she corrected people and said, that's not it. My dad explained it to me why we're getting it wrong. Uh, she, she was, I don't know if it was, she didn't know exactly how long. It wasn't like years. I didn't know Liz when she was still pronouncing it wrong. But there was finally a time when a work friend, he was really like this work big brother for her. He just kept laughing at her about it and teasing her that she had to get it figured out. Uh, and she then confronted her dad, dad at dinner. Dad, you told me wrong. I believed you. You know, I was convinced but he stuck to his guns on this and kept saying, no, 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 you're saying it wrong. But now he kept, of course, laughing and smiling. He couldn't keep himself straight anymore. Today's gospel story is, in the end, all about belief. What do you believe? Who do you believe? And in the case of the stories we have today, this is not a small question. This is central. It is vital. But it's a hard question. As John talks about Jesus rising from the dead, he knows that there are many people who will treat Jesus, and especially think of his resurrection, as if someone is just playing a trick on them. You know, they're going to say, that sounds too good, too awesome to be true. Or you're, you're pulling my leg. When are you going to tell me what the joke is? When are you going to help me with this? Of course, there's no joke here. John is telling us all of this because it is true. He saw it all for himself. And you can't simply set it aside or laugh at this. We have to take it seriously and respond. As you look at the gospel reading in your bulletin today, uh, we actually find its stated purpose at the very end of the reading. Though we also find there, as it turns out, uh, that this isn't just the purpose of this passage. This is the purpose for the whole book. Uh, these resurrection stories followed by these last two verses, verses 30 and 31, um, of explanation there. This is meant as the end of John's gospel. Everything's been leading to this. Though then, right after verse 31, John goes on ahead and adds this really excellent epilogue. And it's an epilogue we really need, but it does kind of break the symmetry he had going for his book. Not a big deal, though. So verses 30 and 31 come in, um, responding especially to these final stories of Jesus' resurrection, but remembering all that came before. And they say, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John here mentions signs. If we looked through the whole gospel, uh, we find that John has been chronicling um, very specific actions of Jesus that we would usually call miracles. He calls them all signs. 
Uh, there are seven signs in the book. I'll quick tell you them all so you don't spend the whole time wondering which ones they were. Uh, seven signs are Jesus turning water to wine, um, Jesus healing an official's son, he does it at a distance, never seeing him, Jesus healing a man who's been lame for 38 years, Jesus feeding the 5,000, five small loaves and two fish, Jesus walking on water, even in the middle of the storm, Jesus heals a man born blind, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. But now at the very end of the book, John is actually also saying that the death and resurrection of Jesus are a, a climactic final sign. This is the eighth sign of Jesus. And the point I'm calling these all signs, not miracles, is that they point to something. All of these is, have been recorded and told to us, not just for fun or because it makes a really dramatic good story, but because these things point to who Jesus really is. These are written so that we can see and know and believe that Jesus is not just a good teacher or just a man with incredible powers, but that Jesus is truly the Messiah and the Son of God. And when we believe that, we find life in his name. So for us and for all of John's readers, our most basic question really is, why should I believe? Why should I believe in Jesus and his miracles, his teachings, his death, his resurrection? And his, why should I believe that he's not like just some superhero or freak with powers or, or a charlatan? And instead believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And the stories that we have today of Jesus' resurrection, they really do show us a lot of why it is we can and should believe Jesus. So first, we can believe in Jesus' resurrection historically. This is a factual issue at the very center of our faith. We proclaim Christ crucified, died, buried, and then raised from the dead. And either this happened or we have nothing. That's why the resurrection is the very climax of the whole gospel. It's that central. It's that necessary. Everything else only matters because we can truthfully, factually say that Jesus did die and did rise from death to live again. So as we look at the story in front of us today, we actually find some really fun, key details that help demonstrate the truth of the resurrection. The first one that I want to mention, uh, it's an easy one to miss. Um, just look at how Jesus enters the story. He just appears. The disciples were told were together with the doors locked. They are afraid of the rulers, leaders of the people. They're afraid they're going to come after them and make sure to really put an end to this Jesus movement. And as they huddle together scared, suddenly Jesus is just right there in the midst of them. Now that would make sense to us if he was like a ghost or a spirit in some way, but the disciples reach out and they touch him. In other stories, they eat with him. We see that Jesus is fully embodied. He even breathes on them. But that body that Jesus has is different now. Somehow Jesus can come and go as he pleases through locked doors and walls. And this is not like anyone thought. Briefly, if we look historically at all the views of resurrection around this time, what they expected if they talked about resurrection at all was that people would come back to life eventually with bodies really just like what they already have. Nothing unique or special about that, about them. But this moment isn't like that. Jesus' body isn't just what it was before. Jesus wasn't in the room, now he is. He's doing what before no one would, thought, would have thought possible. Frankly, he's doing something that doesn't quite make sense to us. But we're told this happened. John didn't make it up. If he was inventing a story here, he would have made up something more expected. On the other hand, John doesn't leave this detail out, even though it's confusing, because he's telling us a true story. The story would be a lot easier if Jesus just knocked on the door and they opened it for him. But here it is, strange and unexpected and true. Much more unexpected in this point is 
simply the resurrection itself. The disciples were not expecting the resurrection of Jesus. No one expected the resurrection except Jesus. Even last week on Easter, as we read the stories of Easter Sunday, we saw this. Early Sunday morning, Mary, one of the women who had been following Jesus for a long time, she went to the tomb and found it empty. She ran and told the disciples, Peter and John ran to the tomb. As a whole, they were confused and shocked and couldn't figure out why was the tomb empty. The passage today provides other examples of this. Uh, The first is actually in the disciples' response to Jesus' appearance among them. Our translation here sounds a bit too Minnesotan when it says only the disciples were glad when they saw Jesus. That's a very pretty good kind of thing. The word is much stronger than that here. It's the disciples are overjoyed. They rejoiced when they saw Jesus. And that's because they never expected to see him again. They weren't sitting around waiting for Jesus to show up. They were hiding and scared because they thought he was gone forever and everything was over. It was all lost. Much more obvious, though, um, for how no one expected the resurrection is Thomas. For whatever reason, Thomas wasn't there with the other ten disciples when Jesus first came to them. But, of course, they couldn't keep from him what had happened. They didn't want to. They had to explain it to him. Now, the story is a bit simple here. It's unlikely that all they said was, we have seen the Lord. That's really just meant as a summary of all the conversations they probably had. They would have told Thomas every detail, everything they could remember. This was too huge. Jesus was alive. But Thomas, he does not and will not believe them. And that's saying something at this point. Remember, Thomas had lived with and traveled with these other guys for probably three years or more at this point. He had seen the signs and miracles of Jesus. He'd heard his teaching. Thomas was following Jesus as his Messiah, along with these now trusted friends. But when they explained to him that this amazing Jesus, who Thomas had served, was actually alive again, Thomas refuses to believe. I don't think we should be too hard on him. Uh, It really makes sense that he would disbelieve. No one thought Jesus was going to rise from the dead. For Thomas, it was easier for him to believe that either his friends were playing some sick joke on him or, or they were delusional in their grief or that there was some imposter. But Thomas wasn't going to be taken in. He was smarter than that. He knew people simply don't rise from the dead. So he would need to see Jesus, especially those wounds, to know that this was the same Jesus who had been crucified and that he was alive again. And Thomas held that position for a week a week of the disciples trying to convince him, surely pleading with him to believe. It wasn't until Jesus appeared that Thomas saw and knew the truth then. Then it was inescapable. This was Jesus risen from the dead. It was true. There are other great details in the other stories of Jesus' resurrection. Altogether, they tell us that the best explanation of what really happened is that Jesus did rise from the dead. We can believe, and not in ignorance or by ignoring facts, the fact is that Jesus rose from the dead. For John, this is the first thing that we must believe. We have to believe this truth that Jesus died, rose, and is alive today. But that's not enough, if that's where we stop. It's not enough to only agree mentally with facts. This isn't about passionless belief in details. We also need to see and understand everything Jesus did and said And then know that he is truly the promised Messiah, the Son of God. We need to be able to believe not just in what happened. We need to believe in him. 
And the whole Gospel of John was written to help us see this truth. Really, at this point, I'm going to encourage you throughout Easter as you continue celebrating, go home at some point and read the Gospel of John, especially with verses 30 and 31 in mind, that these were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and have life in his name. Our story today does, though, tell us so much about Jesus that helps us um, show us why we can believe, why we would even want to believe in Jesus. One of the things for me that stands out in these resurrection stories is what Jesus does after his resurrection. Think with me for a moment. Imagine you've recently been killed. It's kind of a shock, I know. And then you came back to life. For us, that's also a shock. Um, But who would you go visit at that point? Part of me would really want to go visit those people that killed me. You know, I'll show them, hey, I'm alive now. What do you think about me now? Kind of thing. But Jesus doesn't do this. He doesn't show up at a meeting of the Sanhedrin. He doesn't confront Pilate. He doesn't go to anyone who had a direct hand in his death. He doesn't show off or condemn them. There are other options, though. Jesus died, risen. He's the Lord. But he doesn't go and proclaim himself to Caesar or kick Caesar off of his throne here. Jesus rises from the dead, and the first person he goes to, we saw this last week, was one of the women, Mary, one of the women of his group, who was so lost and sad. Then he goes to his disciples, Then he even comes back to specifically speak with that one disciple who refused to believe. Honestly, after everything that Jesus has said and done, of who he truly is at this point, it could be easy to imagine that he might just ignore Thomas at this point. I mean, he wasn't there, he missed out, he's refusing to believe, that's on him. But of course, Jesus doesn't do that. He comes even to Thomas. Consider also what Jesus says as he shows up. Again, I like to think a little bit about what Jesus might have said at some point. Now, I get Jesus goes to see his disciples, but these are the guys who abandoned him. All but John left him alone to die. I can imagine Jesus showing up in their midst and saying, Oh man, I'm glad to see you're all okay. I was worried maybe you got hurt when you were running away as I got arrested and died. (laughs) He could have obviously just said, Where were you when I was dying? He could have said, How could you? How dare you? After everything I'd done. Jesus could have demanded submission, repentance. Jesus doesn't say or do any of these things. Jesus appears to his disciples and he says, peace be with you. Now that's actually a really normal greeting. It was said all the time at this time. It's still said to this day. Uh, For us, it'd be a little bit like Jesus showing up and saying, hey, Uh, it's just so disarming and natural, isn't it? It's really startling enough that Jesus just appears in their midst, that he starts off by just disarming them with a simple greeting, peace be with you. But we actually see Jesus doesn't mean it as just a simple greeting. He repeats it twice. That means it's, he's emphasizing it. He wants his disciples to really think about them, about this. He wants them to think about peace, which is the word shalom. And that's the word that they use to cover the whole idea of how things were supposed to be. Shalom was about God's kingdom, about the goodness, truth, life, and love that was, that was always meant to be and would be when God fully, decisively acted. And Jesus is saying here, peace, shalom, be with you right now. He doesn't show up and condemn his disciples. He shows up and it feels a bit like he's just, he can't hold it in for excitement. He just has to immediately tell them the promised peace has come. It's with them. He has to say it twice. It's so important. He doesn't wait for them to repent or wait for them to submit. Right now, God's peace, God's kingdom, the new age where only goodness and righteousness remain has come upon the disciples. And then there's Thomas. No matter what we think Jesus might have said or done with Thomas, he shows up 
and just immediately addresses Thomas's questions. He doesn't scold him or punish him. He just offers his hands and his side, and he calls Thomas to believe. It's real, Thomas. I'm real and alive. Have faith. And Thomas can't stay skeptical. He cries out in faith, my Lord and my God, all that Jesus said and did, and now he's alive again. This made Thomas so sure of that. Jesus isn't just a good man or a great teacher. He is Lord. He is God. But that moment couldn't happen for Thomas, couldn't happen for us, unless Jesus, out of love, came to Thomas, even in his unbelief. Throughout this story, we see Jesus victorious over sin, death, the devil. He's Lord and God, and he acts that out just loving his people. We see his great compassion. He's not mad at their failures. He understands their fear. We see his patience and understanding. Of course, Thomas doesn't believe. He needs to see. He needs to reconnect with Jesus. This Jesus, this is the one we're called to believe in. This is the Messiah, the Son of God. He's kind, he's gracious, he cares for us and loves us so deeply. And actually, we see even in this moment that Jesus is thinking of us. When Thomas turns to him in belief, Jesus responds, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, he's not complaining that Thomas didn't believe until he saw. He's instead just emphasizing how unique that is. This will not happen for most. All but a small handful of Christians over almost 2,000 years have never seen Jesus like Thomas did. But we believe. And Jesus in this moment wants us to know that even though perhaps we might feel a little bit left out, a little on the outside, I mean, I want to get to see Jesus like Thomas did, um, but there is special blessing for us. That we don't see him like this now doesn't mean that we are forgotten or less than. Jesus knows us and he blesses us. It is this Jesus who John calls us to believe in. This Jesus who we can confess with Thomas as our Lord and God. And when we turn to him, we find true life. John doesn't, in this passage, define what he means by saying that we will have life in his name. But at this point in the gospel story, there can be so much on our minds. Life in Jesus means no more fear of death, no more power of death over our lives, no more weight of guilt. Life in Jesus is about forgiveness and love, having true peace and living in relationship with God. Also in the story, though, life in his name certainly is meant as a life of mission. Immediately after appearing to his disciples, Jesus sends them out in mission. And it's not like a little sending out. It's not a minor mission here. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. That's a huge claim. Throughout the gospel, Jesus has said that he was sent by the Father, and now he's saying, disciples, I'm sending you in that same way. One of the commentaries I was looking at this week, I loved how he explained this. He pointed to a really well-known verse for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And now it's like Jesus is saying that I so loved the world that I give you my disciples, the Christians, so that whoever believes your message about me will not perish, but have life everlasting. Christ has done all that is necessary to bring true peace, to have freedom from sin and death and life forever with God. And now he sends us out in this new life that we have in him to tell others, to bring this great peace and life to everyone that we can. But I know that that can often feel hard, uh, intimidating, or complicated. It does for me. Start with prayer. 
Pray specifically, regularly for the people that you know, that you, they will be open, that you'll find windows and opportunities, that you'll know what to say, when to share. Pray broadly throughout your day, even as you meet people, for guidance and help. And I know, I know for us, we often feel that struggle of, of just kind of wondering, but how wrong might things go right now? How angry might they get with me? I think it's helpful to know there have been some really good studies uh, recently, very surprisingly, that actually say most people are really interested to hear from us. They aren't going to think badly about us for sharing. They actually would like to hear us share about our faith. They don't really understand much of what we believe as Christians anymore. So we get to tell them about Jesus and how he's mattered to us. We get to share how we have this wonderful, loving, compassionate Savior who is alive today. Of course, Jesus, he doesn't send us out on, his own, on, on our own. He gives us his spirit. I also think about in John 13, we consider this on Monday, Thursday. Jesus there promised that whoever receives the one I send receives me. That's a big thing to think about. But Jesus is saying at least that it's not us, ultimately, that people are dealing with. It's really not us who they're responding to. It is all about Jesus. People can receive Jesus in our service. People can find him and, and, and have him and, as we share the true story of his gospel. So Christ has died. Christ is risen. And we turn to him, I hope we turn to him daily in belief. May we know our hearts and eyes opened to that true life that we are promised. And then may we hold fast to the help that he gives us as we go out and share this good news with that he lives. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, that, that hymn, because he lives, is in my mind. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. I ask that you give us such certainty and assurance of your resurrection. Daily, increase our faith and belief in you. Hold us fast. Um, that we, we know our joy and our love in you. Um, and that we, we go out knowing your strength to just, it'll talk about you. Talk about the one we love and serve to others. Help us as we go forth. Um, give us your peace. Amen.